Well, good morning, friends. It's good to see all of you here this morning. Let me invite you to get your Bibles and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes. Today, uh, we begin um, our study through the book of Ecclesiastes, and we want to allow God's Word to shape us and to mold us and to give us really kind of a a fresh look at what it means to be um, uh, children of the Lord and uh, walking in Him. And um, let's stand together. We're going to read um, verses 1 through 3. You can, um, 1 through 3, and then we'll pray and um, we'll get into the, the sermon. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Lord, help us today to humble ourselves before you, to be teachable, be shaped by your word, with the idea, Lord, of being conformed to the image of your son. And Lord, help us to work hard in our listening just as much as the preacher works hard in the preaching. Lord, so that we can grasp the truth that you want to convey to us this morning. So Lord, give us that. Help us, Lord, now to become more and more like your son as we sit under your word in your precious holy name. Amen. Philip Riken shares this following true story. Eutropius had fallen into disgrace. As the highest ranking official in the Byzantine Empire, he served as the closest advisor to Emperor Arcadius. But Eutropius had abused his imperial position and as such angered the empress Eudoxia, and she orchestrated a campaign to chase him down to give him a sentence of death. Desperately to save his life, he ran to the main church, Hagia Sophia, when he clung to the altar and he claimed sanctuary there. He was soon followed by an angry mob of soldiers and people that were watching what was going on. And the next day was Sunday. People gathered. They gathered for worship, but many gathered to watch and to see what the pastor of the church would do. Would he hand him over to the people? And then, of course, gathered on Sunday morning was Eutropius holding on to the altar. And history tells us that this great man had become a pitiable spectacle. And then the pastor gets up and he opens to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. And he says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This is the very well-known John Chrysostom. And for his primary illustration, he used the decline and fall of Eutropius. 
He said he was a man who had lost everything. Position, wealth, freedom, safety. Only just days before, he was the second in command of the whole empire. And now he grovels at the feet of the altar. He says, Eutropius had become more wretched than a chained convict, more pitiable than a menial slave, more indignant than a beggar wasting away with hunger. Christensen would say, though I should try my very best, I could never convey to you in words the agony he must be suffering from hour to hour expecting to be butchered. Christensen didn't stop there. His purpose was not to condemn Eutropius, but to save them and also to give his listeners the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so to that end, he challenged his listeners to recognize the vanity of their own existence, saying whether rich or poor, one day they would all have to leave their possessions behind. They too would face a day of judgment. When the sermon hit its mark, there were tears of pity. Eutropius was spared, spared by the preaching of God's Word. Riken goes on to say after he shares the story, by the grace of God, Ecclesiastes can have the same impact on our lives. By cautioning us not to put our hope in earthly pleasures and worldly treasures, Ecclesiastes teaches us to put our hope in God instead. The book, he says, also reminds us, especially in its closing verses, that a day of judgment is coming like everything else in the Bible. Therefore, Ecclesiastes points us to the gospel of salvation, our only safety in the mercy of Jesus Christ. Friends, today we embark on our study of Ecclesiastes. In other words, we study this group or this book as we study this book. We want to immerse ourselves in it and to allow its message to permeate our very beings. We want to wrestle with its content and hear what God is saying to us. We want to drive, uh, allow it to drive us to the love of Christ and the hope that we have in him. Let's just talk a little bit background about the book of Ecclesiastes. It's in the category of wisdom literature. If you took the Old Testament, you would see it's broken down into four main sections. We have the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We have the historical books, Joshua through Esther. We have wisdom literature, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And we have the prophets, both the, the major and the minor. And so we come to the wisdom literature. And friends, wisdom literature is different than anything else. It's not your typical genre of Scripture. And in particular, there's aspects of wisdom literature, Proverbs in particular, Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, that take us in different directions. Derek Kidner is very, very helpful to identify the uniqueness of Ecclesiastes when he compares it with Proverbs and Job. He says the book of Proverbs is like a great 
house. This is the world that we live in. This is the world that we typically like. This is where there's rules. This is where there's order. This is where there's principles to live by. If you listen and obey, you are wise, and life will generally go well. If you ignore, if you disobey, you're foolish, and life will generally be difficult. Isn't that where we live most of the time? Especially if you're a parent. This is how you function. And then there's Job. (laughs) That's the broken house. Sometimes life throws you into trouble. It gives you a curveball. It ends up putting you in the minor key. Calamity strikes. Sickness overwhelms you. Tragedy causes unbelievable stress. And the question of why is answered that book in one word. God. It might seem insufficient if you haven't read the book, but if you have, it is everything. A God who sees your suffering, knows and cares, but is sovereign and working his plan. And then we get to Ecclesiastes, a decaying house. It, is a, it was a beautiful house that was built perfectly with all the bells and whistles, but it has been decaying and it continues to decay. It's a house that everyone lives in, both believer and unbeliever, but it always seems to be falling and failing and just turning sour. Friends, that is where we are in the book of Ecclesiastes. This is the world that we live in, a once beautiful world created by God that has been decaying over time. And one commentator says this, the book of Proverbs gives us the rules for life. It states the rules and gives us clarity on how to live our lives. And he says the book of Ecclesiastes, however, gives us the exceptions to the rules. Just like when you were in elementary school and your teacher gets up and teaches you the principle I before E except after C. And then when you're done with that lesson, She says, now take out your science books. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, spell science. There are exceptions to the rules. Life is that way. The world calls it Murphy's Law or other things. But this is what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. Ecclesiastes doesn't give us a set of rules that we can check off. No, Ecclesiastes tells us that life is messy. The book of Ecclesiastes is like opening up a 10,000-piece jigsaw puzzle just at the moment your three-year-old son runs into the room, splashing all the pieces all over the room, and you're on your knees trying to pick it up. That's what life looks like in Ecclesiastes. It's a mess. And you're trying to make sense of what's going on here. It's a mystery. But if you start with the outer pieces, start to figure them out and put them together, you can begin to see the wonderful painting that God has in store for you. The reality is, friends, that most people don't take time to mine 
in the book of Ecclesiastes. Just like the book of Job, they settle for the beginning and they quickly go to the end. And they miss out on the joy of all the bits in between. My friends, it's a messy picture. It's not an easy task. It will take patience and thought, but it will be worth it. And to that end this morning, I want to introduce the book of Ecclesiastes by asking the following question. How can we begin to understand this seemingly messy book? Three things. We must listen, we must grasp, we must consider. Let's jump into we must listen. We must listen to the author of the book. So the question is, who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes and why should I even listen to that author? The answer appears to be simple if we read verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Notice, first of all, he is identified as the preacher. This is the Hebrew word koheleth, translated for us, simplified for us, by identifying him as a preacher. Why? Because the idea of a preacher here is not someone who is preaching just haphazardly. This is a person, by virtue of this, this, this word, has a congregation, has an assembly. So it's kind of like the context that we're in today. You have a preacher who is passionately preaching to his congregation, pleading with them to listen to what he has to say. And of course, what he has to say is not his own wisdom. He's pointing them to the wisdom of God. So this is not a preacher who's doing street preaching and talking to everyone. This is not one-on-one. This is a preacher interacting with an assembly with his own congregation. Secondly, we're told that he is a son. This speaks of his intimacy. He's a son of David. He's speaking as a son. He's speaking to us as an old father, a pastor, a disciple maker. He has seen an experienced life. He has seen many sunrises and many sunsets. And as such, his aim is to hand down the mature and timely wisdom that he has received from his father. He's a son who is speaking from the position of intimacy. Third, he's a king. The common belief is that Solomon is the author of Ecclesiastes. He fits the role as the king. Solomon is wise based on chapter 1, verse 16. He fits that. Solomon also had access to lavish resources. We find that listed for us in Chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, he has built gardens and parks and houses and vineyards. He attained silver and gold and treasures of kings. He kept his heart from no pleasure. Whatever he desired, he took. Why? Because he's king. Kings get to do that kind of stuff at this, this time of the world. We know from 1 Kings chapter 7, verses 7 through 14, that the Lord's favor was on Solomon in a unique way, and God gave him great wisdom great riches, great honor, and if he was obedient to his commandments, long life. So as a king, with all these resources at his disposal, he experienced all that life had to offer. And so he speaks to us out of his own experience, good and bad, giving us wisdom, giving us counsel, giving us help, 
that's not the end of it. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verses 9 through 11. And there what we'll find is that he is also the shepherd. It says in verse 9, Beside being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. So again, this is not a haphazard book as we might think. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Now, I think, first of all, the shepherd here would identify the author, but it might point to a greater shepherd. Derek Kidner says this, from this fuller account of the author, we see a portrait of a scholar whose vocation is teaching, research, editing, and creative writing. What his book as a whole is telling us is that he is as sensitive as he is courageous and a master of style. The shepherd is one who is seeking to shepherd his flock with wisdom, care, delight, and truth. But not only is he a preacher, son, king, and the shepherd, the also, author is also Messiah. See, all these allusions are to someone greater that cannot be ignored. Right? A preacher, a son, a king, a shepherd. In Luke 11, where Jesus is speaking to a, a, a gathered crowd, he says this, the queen of the south, that's the queen of Sheba, will rise up at the judgment with men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. He's talking about himself. He's talking about his kingdom. So he's talking about Christ. Friends, we are, we are not just listening to the words of an old preacher, the words of an ancient son, the words of a has-been king. From hundreds of years ago, we are listening to the heart of the very Messiah. We know that to be true. This is what we believe about our Bible. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. So it's not that, it's not that somehow Ecclesiastes is that weird uncle that shows up every once in a while, but somehow he's slipped into this thing we call the Bible. This is the very Word of God. And the primary author of the Word of God is Jesus Christ himself. Maybe Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, maybe he didn't, but Jesus certainly did. 2 Peter 1.21 tells us this, for no prophecy, no teaching was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along, were born along by the Holy Spirit. God breathed out his word through a variety of different writers over 1,500 years. He used their personalities. He used their style. He used their words. But he was like the wind breathing into their sails as they wrote. So friends, Ecclesiastes is 
God's word. Don't forget that. And it's breathed out for your benefit. So listen to the author like you're listening to the words of Jesus. First of all, listen to the author. Secondly, you must grasp the structure. If you want to imagine a day before cell phones, some of you here can. Some of you have no idea what we're talking about. A time before Apple Maps, a time before Google Maps, a time before Waze, to an ancient time when people drove off into the wilderness never to be seen again. Well, no, they didn't. They drove off into the wilderness with a map. Poor Dora the Explorer. She's going to have to change that whole song about I'm the map because now it's like I'm a Google who knows what, SACNAV or something like that, right? If you don't know what I'm talking about, that's okay. I used to be a member of AAA years, years ago, and before I would go on a long journey, I would go to the AAA office, and you'd stand in line for a few minutes, and you'd go up to the counter, and you'd say, where are you going? I'm like, oh, I'm going to Atlanta, Georgia. And they'd say, okay. And they would go bust around and pull this out of here and pull this out of here. And, and they would put together something that was called a triptych. Anyone remember those things? And it would be like a, a particular unique map that they would, they would put together for you for your journey. And they would highlight the journey, stay on this road. And then they would go back and they would say, there's construction here and there's problems here. It always gets congested here. You might want to go around this way. And by the way, when you get down to this place, there's a nice little place that you can stop off and you can see X, Y, Z. It's all there on the map for you. Now, friends, before I would travel to a city, I found it very helpful to study these maps so I could kind of gauge where the roads are going, where the north and south is, where the main highways are, so that if I somehow got lost as I was driving, I could figure out the road and I needed to be on it, get back to where I was at. What happens now, though, is that we just go, there it is. And we drive unthinkingly to our destination. Something else just takes us there and we follow it. And what God wants us to do as we come to the structure here is not to rely on some kind of Google map type of a thing. He wants us to spend time mining out the actual structure to help us on this journey. Now, unlike many books, the structure of Ecclesiastes might look like wet cement after a dogfight or a ball of yarn after a cat fight, but there's still structure to it. So this morning, I want to begin with some deep theological words to describe the structure. There's a clear beginning. That's the first deep theological word. There's a clear ending, and there's all sorts of stuff going on in between. All right? But I want you to see the structure of Ecclesiastes as a journey, in particular, a journey up a mountain to a summit and back down the mountain again. Now, the bear went over the mountain for what purpose? To see what he could see. And what, what did he see when he got up to the other side of the mountain? 
the other side of the mountain. All right? Now, uh, the point here is not to say this is all about the structure, but this is, I think, a helpful way to kind of put the structure together because what we have here are some keys in this book. Yes, there is the introduction, verses 1 through 3. This is where we are today, where the book is telling us a little bit about the author and some of the main themes. It's preparing us for, for what to come. It is the staging area, so to speak. Then as we look at chapter 12, verses 8 through 14, don't turn there, but just think about it. This is the conclusion. This is, this is where the plane lands on the runway and things start to, to make greater sense for us. And we find these famous words, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Now, you've heard that before. But that's the conclusion. You have a beginning and a conclusion. Then you have this, this summit that's, that kind of rises up like a peak in the midst of this, this book. It's chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. In all of the struggle of the journey, the preacher takes us to the summit where we encounter God. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God, he says. Chapter 5, verse 1. God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. And God is the one you must fear. So through all of this, he's, he's taking us to the summit and then we're going over the summit and we're heading down again. So you have this, this journey up, and you have this journey down. So it's all over the place on this journey up. It's taking us on random excursions, seemingly pointless vistas, then gets us back on the road, and we keep on the journey. And sometimes we'll be just left to, to, to wonder, where are we going? Why are we here? And then on the journey down, as we come to, to close to, to the end of this, this book, we will we'll see there's a journey down, and this journey down takes us on all sorts of twists and turns. And you'll see on both sides on the next slide, the bulk of what you have in the first section is this whole discussion about all life is vanity. And then in the second section, you, you have this theme really kind of drilled in where it says, Life under the sun. So as we come to Ecclesiastes, we need to read the book patiently. We need to keep on going on the journey. We need uh, There'll be all sorts of twists and turns and difficulties and joys that we'll encounter. But we must keep going while seeking to embrace God's wisdom for the journey ahead. So allow this book to seep into your soul. Let it be a wonderful resource for the journey. Now, I don't know about you, um, but when I've gone hiking to places like Yosemite, I like to have an idea of where I'm going. I like to be able to see, oh, this is the, this is the mountain, the top that I want to reach. And it might take me all over the place, right? But I'm always kind of like, have my bearings on where is this focal point so that I feel like there's a purpose that I can keep going. I can, I can measure my steps. So grasping, friends, that the, the general structure will help us to put what seems messy and confusing into a greater whole that is taking us somewhere, ultimately, to man's emptiness and God's fulfillment.
So we need to listen to the author. We need to grasp the structure. Third, we must consider the main themes. There are four main themes that will be signposts to help us on the journey. It's not like in Ecclesiastes, it's like, well, here's the chapter on the vanity. Here's the chapter in Life Under the Sun. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. It just kind of pops up here and there using these different themes that help us then think through what it is that God is calling us to do. I'll highlight them briefly. Vanity of vanities. Life is vanity. The word vanity is used 33 times in this book. Now, it doesn't mean, doesn't mean meaningless or pointless. But it means breath, a puff of air, a mist, a vapor. So in other words, vanity means those things that are passing, those things that are temporary, those things that are empty, those things that don't satisfy, those things that don't have any substance to them. When it's like, you know, zero degrees out, and you walk outside and you can see your breath, it doesn't like stay there for a long time. It just, it's out there for just a few seconds and then it's gone. All right? it, it's temporary. It's passing. It's gone. We live in the Hayward Hills and some mornings we wake up and we're in the midst of a, of a mist, of a fog. Can't see any view. It's just dark. It's cloudy. But usually... 10.30, 11 o'clock, it's gone. But it's there for a little bit, and then it's gone. See, everything in creation should be listed under this category of passing or not here very long. All life is vanity. Now, we're familiar with the terms Lord of Lords. In other words, he's the Lord above all lords, or King of Kings. He's the King above king, all kings. He's the, or the holy of holies. This is the, the holiest of the holiest places where this double expression is used to express degrees. And here we're told, vanity of vanities. In other words, this is not just kind of, eh, it's passing. No, this is like totally empty, futile, utterly futile. That's what the preacher is saying here. To put it differently, because of God's curse on creation, in all our endeavors, we cannot find much meaning or sustainable joy in this world or present age. It's vanity, vanity, vanity. It's all vanity. And so using the, the jigsaw analogy once again, the dark pieces of the puzzle, death, injustice, terrible circumstances, they all blend together now with the joy and the beauty of life. Just like in a Rembrandt painting. Have you ever seen those ones that have kind of a light focus? It's like a candle and that kind of stuff. All the edges are dark. And the darkness permeates the whole thing. But it's the light that shines through. It's the light that gives the picture its beauty. But the darkness is still there. The darkness, friends, is not the whole picture. It is a reality of life, but it is not the whole. There is light. There is joy. 
Now, all this prefigures the kind of perspectives that we are given to fill in the gap, so to speak, in the New Testament. The believer, we're told in 2 Corinthians 4.16, is outwardly wasting away. Or in Romans 8, 20 through 22, the believer is subjected to futility and groans while he lives here on this earth. You ever felt that? You ever felt the darkness? You ever felt the groaning? You ever felt the, the emptiness? What's the point? I think of, of Spurgeon who labored so long training pastors, doing ministry, preaching faithfully. And a huge gathering of pastors in his later years. There was this thing called the downgrade controversy. And all these pastors stood against him. I think only six stood with him. Was it worth it? All that time, all that effort? Is it worth it to, to work so hard for the Lord only to be turned on in your latter years? Yeah, it's worth it. It's a darkness. But that doesn't mean that life is totally and completely vain. One commentator, I think, helpfully says, we're living in an overlap. Futility and groaning on one hand, joy and hope on the other. They're, they're kind of overlapped, and we're living in that, in that set where they overlap. There are times of groaning, there's times of futility, but there's also, in the midst of that, Joy and hope. And that's why through Ecclesiastes, you have these dark kind of images and dark kind of expressions, and then all of a sudden, in the midst of it, boom, here's hope. Here's joy. All is vanity. Secondly, is there gain to all my toil? Ecclesiastes 1.3 says, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Now, throughout the book, we'll see these words, toil and striving. This is what we're doing every day. We're, we're toiling and striving, trying to reach some kind of gain. And what do we get from all this work that we put into life every day? What gain or profit will come if I give myself to money, if I give myself to, to pleasure or to power or to prestige? Will any of my striving and toil matter in the end? It is just work, work, work. Strive, strive, strive. And what will I have to show for it? What will it even matter? Will anyone care? Will anyone even remember me? Has that question ever caused you to panic? <laughs> the truth of the matter is that we can't really move on or go anywhere until we figure out this question. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 15 says this. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. I think James might have been reading the book of Ecclesiastes. 
Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. What has God called us to do in the fog? The psalmist says it well. Be still and know that I am God. Psalm 46, verse 10. Friends, there is a great promise that we have been given, a promise that Koheleth, the writer, may not have quite comprehended as the evolution of our understanding of the gospel develops and lands its plane in the New Testament. And it's the Apostle Paul who reminds us that there's coming a day when our toiling and striving will cease and we will know Christ. And when we are standing in His presence, we will not shed a tear over what we have treasured so much on earth. And when you land your head on the pillow that one last time, it will be gain. That's what Paul says. For me to live is Christ. To die is what? Gain. It's not gain if all of our effort and our attention is on the here and now. It's not gain. For many of us, I think we might feel it's loss. You may have heard of John Piper's wonderful poem called The Calvinist. You should go on YouTube and listen to it. The last stanza says this. See him nearing death. Listen to his breath. Through the ebbing pain. Final whisper. Gain. Friends, we who know Christ we who sing about Christ, we who gather together week after week hearing the gospel of Christ, know the gain is what we look forward to. It's the wonderful promise in the midst of this crazy, messed up, confusing world. And if you're one of God's children, you're called to live your life here and now with all its struggle, all its toil, all of its pain, but when he calls you home, it will be gain. That is your anchor, that is your hope, that is your longing. Is there gain to all my toil? Third, under the sun. This phrase, under the sun. As we journey through this life, the preacher's in no hurry to answer the questions. We just, we just got one. Google, pull it out, boom, 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 boom. I got the answer now. Do you, do you remember the time when it's like, I have a question. My, my, my mom would say, Mom, how do you spell such and such? Being a good mom, she'd say, go to the dictionary. We want to research something, we're like, let's go to the library. This thing called the library. They have these things, they're ancient things. They're called books. They're made of paper and they're printed on. You go through these libraries and you find this way to navigate through all these different systems and find and actually sometimes the journey was was wonderful because you'd find this nugget of truth buried deep in this volume of whatever it was. Sometimes that's good because what we were trying to think through needed time to slowly seep into us today. It's boom, pow, boom, there it is. And he just boom, 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 boom. As opposed to taking its time to, to slowly work into us. See, the preacher wants us to look very closely at the world we can see and the answers it seems to give while he slowly drops hints at what his viewpoint is. 
And one of the first expressions here is this one, under the sun, which is repeated, a repeated theme mentioned over 31 times in this book, and it describes the world that we observe and the world that we experience. It's the world that we take in with our senses, the world we can see, we can smell, we can touch, we can hear, we can taste, we can enjoy. And there's two extremes that we can fall into when, when it comes to looking at this world under the sun. Extreme number one, indulgence. In other words, we take the things under the sun too seriously. In other words, we, we, we're looking for our satisfaction. We're looking for our hope and our joys in the pursuit of the things that this world has to offer. So we, we run after materialism, hoping that that will bring satisfaction. But you know what it's like? As soon as you drive your car off that lot, if you got it for new, it's diminishing value and the next one's coming up just around the corner. Or the pursuit of pleasure will give us what we are looking for, and we find when we buy it into it that it's not what it promised. Indulgence. Secondly, denial. When we don't take things seriously under the sun, that we should be taking seriously. We don't enjoy the things that God has given us. We don't relish Eating a taco. Next time you eat a taco, just pause. Take the flavors in. Or how about just hanging out with friends and family? Some of you are going to be doing that today because of Super Bowl. But just pause and just think how wonderful it is to be able to spend time with friends, to enjoy laughter, to play games together, or savoring a cup of coffee. Or all the rainfall that we got. I know places are getting flooded and all that kind of stuff. But do you love the fresh smell of rain? Your house is traveling down the road in this flood, but you're smelling the beauty of rainfall. There's two extremes, right? There's a place. For both of them. There's a place to pursue the things that are in this world. We can, we can fall into the ditch on both sides. Friends, there are joys that I mentioned there that are only a taste of what is yet to come. Think a taco's good? It's better than that. Think hanging out with friends is good? It's better than that. All these things are are a shadow. They're, they're not the substance. They're the shadow. They're the taste of what is yet to come. In other words, if the gifts that we receive in this messy, decaying world are good, then just think about how much better the life to come will be. And how much better the giver of life, Christ himself, must be. Friends, the things that our souls truly long for will never be met by the things that are under the sun, but only by the one who is in heaven, the one who is over and above. This is what it says, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 2. God is in heaven, and you are on earth. So let your words be few. <laughs> But one day, you will step over into, into heaven and you will not 
you'll, you'll be so overcome with how wonderful and beautiful and joyful, and I don't mean pie in the sky, the reality, it will be the substance that you only experience the shadow of. Life under the sun. Everyone lives life under the sun, not just believers, but those who are also unbelievers. Then there's this idea of, of fearing God. It's the last theme. The fear of God is part of the solution given at the end. Fear God and keep His commandments. But we find it creeping up in chapter 3, verse 14, and then in chapter 5, verse 7. It is slowly meandering through the text to reach its destination, its climax in chapter 12. The commentator is very helpful. He calls the fear of God trembling trust. Those who in the midst of all the hard truths and awful troubles of this fallen world come before the Lord with trembling trust are given by Him the gift of grateful obedience, steady contentment, and surprising joy. When you trust Him, He's gifting you more than you can imagine. And so we can also conclude that the fear of God is not only the beginning of wisdom, it is also the beginning of a purposeful life. Friends, Ecclesiastes describes life in a secular world. In other words, life in a world without God, wants to remove God. So no God in schools, no God in education, no God in academia at all, no God in politics, no God in any discussion of morality, no God in medicine or the soft sciences of psychology and psychiatry. You can't bring him in there. He's not a factor to be considered. No God in sports, especially at the Super Bowl, you can get on your knee and you can shake your fist into the heavens because of injustice, but if when you won your game and you're being interviewed, you begin by saying, I want to thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's cut out. No God. No God in social discourse. No God in science. No God plain and simple. This is the secular world we're in, friends. Oh, you can have your religion, but you must keep it private and be quiet about it and and that's all we can tolerate. And they're saying that while they're somehow giving you some condescending pats on the head for the kind of person that needs that kind of crutch to live by. But if you're not private about it, and you don't keep quiet, you will be labeled with one of those following words, extremist, fanatical, zealot, fundamentalist, right-wing, bigot, and you can go on. This is a secular world. It doesn't want God. But friends, God followers, Christians, are also living in this secular world. We're called to live in this secular world. And as we live in this secular world, this world that wants to remove God from everything, we find our meaning in Christ. We don't give in to this secular world, but we find the anchor that holds us in place so we can swim against the current by trusting God and what He says. They recognize that they need to fear God and keep His commandments, to live 
before him with a trembling trust and obedience. You see, the same thing happens to all who live under the sun. But the one who is anchored to Christ responds differently. All is vanity. Is there gain to any of my toil? Living life under the sun. The fear of God. So, so what's, the, what's the theme of the book? Let's kind of take all of this and bring it now to, to kind of a, a moving toward a close here. One commentator says it well. Sidney Grydness says this. Fear God in order to turn a vain, empty life into a meaningful life which will enjoy God's gifts. This is the conclusion here. Or before There should be a slide up there that has that. There you go. Thank you. Fear God in order to turn a vain, empty life into a meaningful life which will enjoy God's gifts. When you feel life is vain, when you feel it's empty, God has a purpose in it. He wants you to, to strive for those wonderful gifts that he has for you. But now, I, I, I attempted to come up with a few of these things, so just bear with me. Here's the first attempt. The emptiness of life is real. It's a real delusion that can only be satisfied by the fullness we find in Christ. It's emptiness on one side. It's fullness on the other side. Life is full of emptiness. Life is full of delusion. But our satisfaction, our fullness is found in Christ. Another one, the aim of Ecclesiastes is to help the reader see the emptiness of this life from a human perspective and so to lift their eyes higher to see the beauty and glory of God in heaven. Stop looking down here. Start looking up there. Friends, when we look down here, all of the values, all the measuring sticks, all the tools that we're using to interpret life are apart from God. And God says, stop, wait a second, look up, and then you can look down to see and understand what is happening here. Because by the way, this is a broken world. This is a world that is decaying. There's something more yet to come for you, and it's gain. But here's where I landed the plane today. Simply stated, Ecclesiastes is calling us to live life anchored to Christ in a messy, decaying world. Now, I'm sure as we venture further into this book that I will find myself refining, dialing some things down, dialing some things up, scrapping maybe this melodic line and coming up with another one. But this is where I am right now. This is how I see it, having read through it a number, a number of times. But the thing that really kind of strikes me is that we're called to live life in this messy, decaying world. And as we do that, we're called to be anchored to the one who is our creator, sustainer, the one who gives us life, and that is Christ. So we press on humbly, willing to allow God to teach us and work in our hearts. So just four concluding thoughts. These are my challenges to you as you uh, join and venture with us. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes probably till the month of June. So my encouragement to you is jump on board as quickly as you can so that you can 
be with us. You're coming with your mind full of what's going on. We're not going to be taking huge, long sections. And there's going to be some stuff you're going to look at and you'll be like, I have no idea what's going on. But it's good if you're prepared and you're ready and you're thinking these things through. Number one, marinate in the text, right? Marinate, let it get into you. So read it and read it and read it again. Read it in one setting. Read it with a highlighter. Read it with a pen. Read it with a pencil. Take another color. Circle the names. Circle the events. You know, what are the questions that are in there? Try and find those things out. Just marinate in it. You say, that's fine, Pastor Rod. You're a pastor. You know how to do all these different things. Look, I'm just another follower of Christ. I'm just one week ahead of all of you. You're not dumb. You're smart people. Allow the Word of God to have its way in you. Secondly, meditate on the text. Let it capture your thoughts. Be thinking about it. Ask lots of questions about it. You know, do some some studying within Ecclesiastes itself. Third, dialogue about the text. Let it fuel your discussions, your conversations with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, hey, Pastor Rod was speaking on such and such passage, and man, I was thinking about this and that. What about this question? Have you thought... Allow it to be the the fodder of your conversations. You think God is pleased when we're interacting together over His Word? Of course He is. So dialogue about it. Wrestle together with those things. Finally, pray through the text. Let it take you to God. When you're struggling about what the text is saying, where the text hits home, Take it to the Lord. Ask Him for wisdom to see what is true. Ask Him to help apply the truth to your life. Ask Him for strength so that you can do what His Word says. Friends, don't run away from Ecclesiastes. Run to it, trusting that God has breathed it out for you and for me. And together as a church, may this journey up this mountain and down again with all its messiness be a wonderful source of strength for we who are living under the sun with all its emptiness and discouragement anchored to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us today. Help us to grasp what you want us to see in this book. Lord, for some, this may be very daunting. Reading simply might be a difficulty. Comprehension might be a difficulty. Making connections might be a difficulty. Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit and his ministry of illumination would help your your, your sons and daughters that are part of our church to 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 see and to understand and to grasp what it is that you're saying. And you'd allow me and Dennis as we come before your flock to help be the tour guide, so to speak, to show us what you want us to see. Not just in theory, but in practice.
to move us from a place of, of living in darkness to a place of living in the joy and the light of trusting you as our Lord and Savior. We need your help, Lord. And we're thankful that you love us enough to even give us a book like this so that we can, we can grow and we can grasp the things that you want for us. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen.